Welcome to season two of the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Deeper Tony, editor of the Forbes Under 30. On this show, the world's top business leaders and young entrepreneurs share their big wins, important failures, and tips on how to compete in today's fierce business climate. Most would agree that failure hurts. But when it comes to Adam Rippon, the celebrity figure skating champion, and comedian and writer Esther Pavitsky, the pain of rejection and failure served as fuel for their insatiable desire to succeed. You'll hear from them today as they speak with Alexander Wilson of Forbes. You'll also hear from the guy that brought Facebook to its knees, Chris Wiley, the famous Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. He speaks to Thomas Brewster of Forbes. Both these conversations took place at the Forbes Under 30 Summit last year in Boston. But first... This podcast is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform allows you to manage more of your marketing activities from one place so you can market smarter and grow faster. We brought you here today because you've had a huge year, both of you, but we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about what have you been doing up to this point because both of you have been in the trenches for over a decade doing what you do. Where were you 10 years ago? Oh. <laughs> It's been a long road, babe. Yeah. Um, do you want to start? I'm, I'm... Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so 10 years ago, I actually dropped out of college. Um, I, was, I was in school, and I really felt like I was in a place in my life where everyone was telling me, like, just get your degree, and then you'll get a job, and you'll get into the workforce, because I wasn't quite sure yet what I was going to do with my life, and it was um, right, it was the beginning of 2009, and like the, or 2008, 2009, and obviously we all know the recession happened, and both my parents lost their jobs, and I was like, wait, why am I putting in all this work to do something that I don't even love, and it's not even going to for sure work out, and once I realized that, I dropped out of school, and I moved to Los Angeles to pursue stand-up, and you know, obviously I worked a bunch of like my side hustles, I was a babysitter, um, worked at a juice shop, worked at a gym, and I was just doing open mics every single day, like, you know, as many as I could every night, living and breathing that world, because I knew that that was the only way to make it, was if it was all I did, I didn't have a social life or anything, I was just a girl who was a little bit overweight and uh, was trying really hard. I don't oh know. God, stop talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. What else? <laughs> Where were you? Um, well, I, I think 10 years ago, I was 18. Um, but I feel like the more like in-depth story or the time period that I go back to of like where have I come from is almost like four years ago when um, I didn't make the last Olympic team. And I feel like in the last four, five, six years is when I've learned the most about myself. Um, I, I was a, an Olympic alternate in 2010 and um, I felt like, oh yeah, of course I'll go in 2014. I'll be like the perfect age. I'll be in the best shape of my life. And uh, 2014 came along and I was awful. And um, I was just a girl who was a little overweight. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I remember uh, it was when I first moved to California. When I first moved to California, I um, said that, you know, I really, I have to make this happen. And um, I didn't do stand-up every night, but it's like when I went into the rink, um, I was trying to pay for everything myself, and um, I wasn't doing that great, but it was so important to me that I like take 
control of my career. And um, actually, one of my really good friends, she's here tonight, she just moved to Boston. Um, I remember going to the grocery store with her and I was like, oh, I'll get it. We were gonna like make dinner at home. And I remember like running my credit card and it getting like declined. And I remember being like, oh, that's so weird. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but I knew exactly what happened. I didn't have any effing money. <laughs> and, you know, I, I knew like, you know, but I remember like being there in that time and also being like, I need to go to the gym. I need to pay for my ice. I opened a bank account at Bank of America. I know this is a JP Morgan place. Um, uh, so sorry, shout out to JP Morgan. Um, but I remember I opened a bank account with 80 euros I had from like some random competition I went to and I was like, do you accept these euros? And so that's what I opened an account with and I only had enough money to barely pay for my ice only be a member of the gym where I would go in and take all the Granny Smith apples because the only money I had for groceries was like to buy a family bag of trail mix. <laughs> I lost a lot of weight though. <laughs> I actually am glad that you bring this up because I, f I really relate to that. Like I feel like when I was starting out, I was so, I don't feel like it, I know I was so broke and I saw people around me who weren't in that situation, you know, maybe they had help from their families and stuff, which is, you know, it's great for what it is. But I, I saw those people not as hungry as I was yeah. because for me, there was no plan B. And I know that if I had a plan B, things were hard enough that I absolutely would have used it. Like, I'm not trying to pretend. Was there ever a time where you guys wanted, thought about, you know, quitting and going into a more traditional field? Like 100% yes, almost all the time. Yeah, almost daily. <laughs> I think, I think that's normal. And yeah. I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes it's coming to grips with knowing that that feeling is going to be there and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the day after I quit school, I remember waking, I, I quit school, I moved home on my 21st birthday, and I woke up the next morning and immediately started Googling community colleges, because I was like, what have I done? I'm, I have nothing now. And it was, I was so full of fear, and I actually think that that was like such a big part of what made me, again, so hungry, and I, again, no plan B, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. So at that point, what do you do then? Like, where did you, what was your next step and how did you take it and go on that entrepreneurial journey for both of you actually? I feel like in that moment of like, there's no, nothing else for me to do than to just go forward, you sort of have this like blind faith or you need this blind mm -hmm. faith where you just don't do anything with any fear because the biggest fear that you have is that it doesn't work out. And so the most important thing and the only thing you can do, the only way you'll be successful is if you go into every opportunity and you're like, here's everything I have. I don't have anything else to give. And you never walk away from any of those situations and you're like, I could have done more. Mm -hmm. Like even in those situations, when you make a mistake, you're like, I can learn from that, but I know it wasn't because I didn't try hard enough. What happens when you fail? Both of you guys are in these wildly public fields. And, you know, I can't imagine doing stand-up comedy or <laughs> ice skating in front of people. What happens when you have failure? You just keep going. And you hold your rejections almost the way you would hold a trophy or a prize. 
Like, I, yes, queen. <laughs> um, you know that the rejections are not going to stop. They're going to keep going. Like, yes, I have two seasons of a TV series. It's going to get canceled one day. I'm going to pitch a new show. And th that shows someone's going to tell me no. I'm, you know, like, I know I'm, I'm ready. Like, bring me the no's. That's what I've, I'm strong at handling the no's because I've had to for so long. That's my, I always like to think my strong suit is handling rejection. And that is a skill. And it's, like, all you have to do to handle that skill is just, like, take it on. You know, yeah. you don't really have to, like, take a class or anything. <laughs> I remember being, like, so embarrassed and, like, ashamed of times where I felt like I would come up short. And it wasn't until I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I messed up. <laughs> and I owned it, and I, like, wore it, and it was my trophy, and it was something I wore really proudly because it led me to the next thing. And I was better because of it, because I made sure I learned. And I think a lot of times I would pretend it didn't happen and then it would happen again, and I'd be like, I don't understand what's going on. But I wasn't learning my lesson. Um, and it was like, when I learned my lesson, I learned from it. And that's when I was like, oh, I, I won't make the same mistake again. Fear of embarrassment is, it sucks. It's like, so real, too. Yeah, it's so real, and I don't think I could be a comedian and get on stage if I was afraid of being embarrassed, because I'm embarrassed. Like, I do embarrassing things to make money, like I try to get people, you know. Yeah, so, if I had a nickel. <laughs> so yeah, I think really another, like again, like when I think of what, what am I bringing to the table that the others maybe aren't is ability to handle rejection and no fear of embarrassment. Like nothing, I, I if people are laughing at me, that's fine, like I'll take it. A laugh's a laugh. <laughs> and a dollar's a dollar. <laughs> Both of you are also a bit of, you know, outsiders in your field as first openly gay athlete at the Olympics in the Winter Olympics, then also being a woman in comedy, you're not really represented. How do you guys kind of storm the fortress and become those first individuals? I think you don't really think about it. You just, you, you set a clear vision of what you want to accomplish. Um, you know, when I qualified for the Olympic team and all of these articles started coming out that like, this is the first openly gay athlete to ever qualify for the Olympics. My first reaction was like, really? <laughs> Which I know I'm not the first gay athlete ever. Have you seen sports? <laughs> um, but the reason I know everyone's laughing because they're like, we've seen sports. Um, but the thing is, is that because of people who've come before me, they've laid down that groundwork f so that somebody like me could be an open athlete, not think twice about it, and then get that news and be like, huh, okay. But I think like to break barriers, you can't go out there with the only goal is to just break barriers. I think when you go out there and you just have that goal, you break them by accident. And um, I, that's, it, it was never my goal to be like the first out athlete at the Olympics representing the US. My goal was to just go to the Olympics. Um, and that's what my focus was. And then and that's how I, was, I think I was able, I was focused on the right things, which is why I was able to do so many things and have so many really amazing opportunities like be here today. Those things like, 
they ended up just making me angry, and that would, again, just add more fuel to the fire. Cause there it was, was like fuel. Yeah. It felt like fuel. Yeah, there was nothing, because when I, I showed up to the comedy store in Los Angeles, and I wanted a job, because basically when you're a stand-up, the only currency out there is stage time, and the only way to get stage time at the comedy store was to be an employee there or and do the open mic. So I'm like, I got to get a job here. So I go, I show up. I'm like, hi, I want to, how do I get a job? They're like, we only hire men. We only hire men for the cover booth. We only hire men for security. You know, they only hired men at that time. And I'm like, well, that sucks. But there was, I in that position, like I, there was nothing I could do about it. It just made me really angry and it made me hang out there. I would then show up. I, I like I said, I babysat during the day and I would get to the comedy store right when the doors opened at 9 p.m. And I'd stay there in the showroom till 2. I'd talk to people. I'd watch the show. I, would, I just w wanted to be in that world so badly and I didn't care that I couldn't get a job. I just, I just stayed there and like waited until somehow I could get my name on the friends and family list and get the, the stage time. Work. <laughs> I think part By of the way, sitting at a comedy club is a lot easier than actually being an athlete. So. <laughs> In a way, it's like being an athlete, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> time, Stamina. precision, dedication. <laughs> I also think part of why you guys have had such big years is that you both are very honest in yourself. And, you know, I think it's something where both brands and also individuals, people can feel when it's dishonest. How do you guys kind of carry yourself and have that confidence to have it show through? For me, I don't have anything else. And so when I go on stage, all I have is the ability to talk about myself and what's true to me. And I'm not here to like make up stories and make, make stuff up. And I remember when I started stand up, people would tell me like, you have a voice. And I was like, oh my God, can I sing? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. And then eventually I realized it was just cause like when I, <laughs> had a yeast infection, I got on stage and talked about it. Like, that's all that meant. And now I meet people who are starting out as writers, you know, in comedy and stand-ups, and like, how do I find my voice? And I'm like, I can't really tell you how to find your voice. It's, it's in you. Like, you just have to ask yourself questions, and you'll, you know, like, how do I feel about this? That's your voice. Like, that's who you are. That is the fun. Do you, can you sing? No. <laughs> no, I can't. I think um, the one thing I've tried to do is, like, j you know, stay true to who I am. Um, and I, that's, like, stay connected to the people that you've known forever, mm -hmm. um, who keep you in check, who, who know you really well. Um, like, I've been so lucky to have so many great opportunities this year, and it's been amazing, and it's been incredible. But... Um, I've been out here for a few days, and so like the friend that I'm, I'm visiting, um, her name's Ashley, so, hi Ashley. Um, so <laughs> I um, was telling her, of, like, she's like, you're traveling so much, like, how do you, like, stay sane? And I was like, my trick is that every time I go to duty free at the airport, I use all the samples. So like, I use all the lotions, <laughs> all the eye creams, I have like my own experience and um, I'd use, like, the cologne and everything. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm just, like, so smart. And she looked at me, and she's like, wow, you're still white trash. <laughs> and I think that's, like, in all essence, it's just, like, I'm still white trash. I just wear nicer clothes. And I just try to stay connected to that. 
do you guys have any advice um, as we start to wrap up in what people can do to pursue creative fields? It's definitely the road less traveled. It's a lot harder than going to college, you know, getting a job at a bank and um, going that route. What is your guys' advice to kind of like succeeding and sticking to it? I think being passionate and inspired and motivated are key. Like, if you want it so bad, you will get it. If you kind of want it and you kind of want to like work for your dad or you kind of want to like just get married, whatever it is, like you're, you're, it won't happen. But if you really want it, I believe that it will happen. Cause that's, mo here's the thing, most people are so lazy. Most <laughs> people are lazy, it, like, <laughs> If you're just not lazy, it, there's a good chance that you'll figure it out. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> I think the hardest thing to do sometimes is to ask for help. It's sometimes really hard to say that you don't know the answer. And I think exactly like you just said, it's like, don't be lazy. If you don't know, say, I don't know. Ask the questions that need to be asked. If you need help, ask for help. Somebody is always willing to help. And one day you're gonna be that person that somebody's gonna ask you and you're gonna be like, hey, I remember being that like proactive in what I wanted to do. And um, you can't be afraid to ask for help. And it, it, in my skating career, I didn't get far until I started asking for help, until I started talking to people I looked up to, until I was honest with how I was feeling with my friends about where I was in my career. And, and I know going forward, um, that's what I plan to do too, is not be lazy and be proactive. And you just have that vision of like, I'm gonna live in this rock bottom place for the rest of my life because it makes me feel like there's nothing to lose and there's really nothing to lose at all times. I think when you feel and you are in that mental space of like, I have nothing to lose, I only have something to gain, that's when you are like pushed to your greatest potential. And now that you have this platform and you've, you know, quote unquote made it, what do you plan on doing with, you know, your success and what's your big plan for the next year? I, I mean, I, this, the platform that I've been given is like so awesome, but I see it as like a responsibility I have now to use my voice. You know, er, earlier, like a few days ago, I found out Jeff Flake was gonna be here and I was like, okay, you know what? He's gonna be in Boston at the same time I'm here. Is there a rally and can I go? And so like I made sure I went this morning because like if you have that, like if you, if, I, I feel like, because I have a platform and I can reach a lot of people, I, I want to use it because I want to use it for something that I'm passionate about, what I think is important. And um, I, that's what I want to use my platform for. I also like telling like stupid jokes on Twitter too. So it's like <laughs> finding the balance between like saving the country and then just talking about how you use all the samples at duty free. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> airport tips. <laughs> um, thank you guys both so much for being here, and yeah, Please welcome interviewer Thomas Brewster, security and privacy reporter, Forbes Media, and Chris Wiley, former director of research, Cambridge Analytica. 
Uh, hi everyone, uh, we're going to dive right into it because we've only got 15 minutes um, to talk with Chris here. Um, and I'm sure you all know who Chris Wiley is, but just in case you don't, uh, he was a uh, research lead at Cambridge Analytica a few years back. Um, he's the guy who blew up the entire um, Cambridge Analytica leak story, which you would have seen in The Guardian and New York Times. Um, so Chris, hi, how are you doing? I'm good. What was Cambridge Analytica? Why was it so insidious? Why did you get to the point where you thought, I need to tell the world uh, about what this company's doing? Yeah, so, um, okay, so I'll just like rewind slightly to kind of like explain the context of how like CA developed and then that kind of like I think helps sort of explain why it's insidious. Um, so I first joined a company called SCL Group, um, which was a British military contractor that focused in information operations for mostly NATO uh, clients and militaries. Um, and my role coming on as research director at SCL was to take a lot of the um, old school ways of doing information operations and seeing how to translate that into a digital or cyber environment. Um, because when you look at um, Traditionally, how a lot of psychological operations had been conducted um, previously by the American military, um, some of it was like pretty, like old school. Like their manual has an entire chapter on like loading canisters of leaflets and how to like shoot them out of a plane, and just like bombard villages with these like leaflets. Um, and then it has a caveat, make sure that they can read first and do it in the language that they read. Like, yeah, like that's like where they were at. Okay, so this is um, like really old school. Really old school. Actual information warfare where you're raining down information on people. Y yeah, I mean, and, and uh, I mean, that, that's just one example. They had that, you know, other more sort of um, hardcore techniques. But um, essentially looking at the problem that the, the military um, and more broadly just the defense of our, our countries had, which was, um, Actually, when you look at where ISIS recruits, for example, um, where extremist groups organize, um, where you know organized crime happens, a lot of that's actually online. Um, and so, I started as research director with the, this sort of mandate, and um, it uh, very quickly I got introduced to a bunch of research um, from DARPA, which is the U.S. military's research agency, and that was looking at. Um, one area of information operations, which is called profiling, and um, DARPA had funded research on how to take social media profiles and translate that into predictions about psychological uh, disposition and state. And that was important because if you could um, profile underlying motivations, uh, underlying psychological attributes, you could better predict the behavior of your targets. Um, and so what we started embarking on was to take um, this research and try to actually take it out of a lab and scale it. Um, something to sort of describe, when you look at um, something that the military um, does in, for example, um, a counter-narcotics operation, let's say in South America, um, if you've got an established um, network um, of belligerents, is what they would call it, whether that's a um, narcotics organization or whether that's ISIS, um, one of the first things that you want to do in an IO operation, information operation, is to 
trying to identify the types of people who you could exploit and undermine you undermine psychologically in order to um, undermine morale and cohesion and the actual effectiveness of an organization. And so in the old school way, you would do that with confederates, what are called confederates, where you would literally plant people into organizations. And then they would find people who um, were less resilient uh, psychologically, whether they, had, they were more prone to conspiratorial thinking, they, you know, you, you essentially tried to ex exacerbate, you know, distrust and uh, sort of paranoia um, amongst certain people who are more prone to that. And from that, once they um, sort of fell into this, this spiral of thinking, then th they would introduce them to other people. And then that would start to feed on each other and it would grow organically. And so what that means online is that if you look at, for example, Facebook's algorithm, which is something that was identified very early on, it overtrains, or what you would call overtraining, which means that the algorithm looks for things that are very distinct about people, and then it will overemphasize that kind of, showing that kind of information. So if you like Walmart and Two and a Half Men, your, your newsfeed's not gonna change that much, but if you like I Heart the KKK, your newsfeed will like completely accommodate to that, because that's a very distinct feature as you as a user. And so one of the things that the, the company realizes is that if you first join people to groups, online and then cultivate a relationship with those people um, and rather than having a physical confederate you have d digital confederates on pages where it's you know in 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 the sense of uh, the american election you know out of state joe who's just a patriot and he thinks like you just like lots of other people and you know these 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 sort of feelings that you have or these thoughts that you have that you, you traditionally stop yourself from going down because it's socially unacceptable, there's other people who are thinking that. And maybe it is acceptable. Maybe you should be talking about these things. Um, for example, race realism, which was something that Steve Bannon um, very much was interested in, which is a, a, an alt-right reaction to the accusation of racism that maybe, um, you know, maybe it's not racist, maybe it's just being, quote, realistic about race, right? So you identify people who are more prone to that kind of thinking and develop a relationship with those people and do that on a group or on a page. And all of a sudden, they start encountering people not knowing whether they're real or not, um, who think like them, act like them, sound like them, and that reaffirms that, that kind of thinking and it, it, it brings it to the forefront of their mind. And from that, after those groups would get to, you know, between sort of 1,000 to 2,000 people, actual events would happen. So on average, 5% of people would actually go to an event. And so if you pick the local county coffee shop and you invite all these people, right, you know, it's a bunch of people in Europe that are actually doing the invitations. It's out-of-state Joe who's not real. So like out-of-state Joe, is going to invite all these people. And if only 5% come, these people show up and there's between 50 and 100 people who just flood a coffee shop. And all of a sudden, this online fantasy gets translated into like a very tangible reality where they look around and it's like all these people who look and sound exactly like them who are talking about all the things that they've been thinking or talking about online. And all of a sudden, this sort of digital fantasy becomes real. And it, they b begin to get this idea that there is a movement happening. And 
In the military, that would be called insurgency building. In the United States, in politics, that's called the alt-right. Okay. And, that's, okay, why, wait, wait, and wait. that's why it's insidious. So we're saying, so just to kind of sum up what you're saying, you're saying that Cambridge Analytica was essentially building an in insurgency. responsible for building an insurgency, which you're calling the alt-right. Yeah. And that, and that was the entire point, because when you look at what Steve Bannon wanted, so that was the research. Steve Bannon became quite interested in the company, SCL Group, um, because he met one of our clients on a plane who was working for the US Air Force Cyber Command. And, oh no, he, one of his colleagues met him on a plane, and they started talking about information warfare. And, you know, Steve took over Breitbart, um, you know, which, had this ultimate purpose of trying to change the culture. I mean, it didn't really succeed at the time because it became sort of a, you know, hate blog for white dudes who can't get laid or whatever. But, um, I mean, like, literally, read the comments. You know it. It's true. Um, but, like, when you want to f engage in something called a culture war, right, that's a, that's a term that's, like, used very pointedly. And in order to fight a war, you need an arsenal of weaponry, right? And in the military, you call that the fifth dimension of your battle space. You've got land, air, sea, space, and information. It's the fifth domain of your battle space. And so if you want to engage in a culture war, you need to build weapons for that. And who better than a military contractor that works for the military? The, the, the sort of sick art irony of this is that you had the American military establishment and intelligence establishment <clears throat> by proxy funding uh, research that ultimately got used against Americans themselves. Yeah, so going straight back to DARPA, through to Cambridge Analytica, to where we get to now. I mean, at what, point, at what point did you, you know, look at what was happening at Cambridge Analytica, at Cambridge Analytica and go, this is... That's fucked up. This is, yeah, well, yeah. To yeah, put it, uh, I think... To put it in a nice way. You know, um, the idea that you are, rather than, you are treating voters in the same way that you would treat a terrorist. And when, you treat a te when you're engaging with a, a terrorist, right, the agency and autonomy of that terrorist is not a consideration, right? Because from the military's perspective, you could either undermine the group cohesion of a target network, right, or confuse them, um, or make you start rumors and you know, decrease the ability for them to, to recruit. Or you could send in a drone and blow them up and literally physically destroy them, right? Those are your options. So when you're dealing with the more passive option, information operations is considered what's a low-density option, what they would call a low-density option. Um, the agency and autonomy of those people is not a consideration, right? It's, your objective is denial of your opponent's objective. Um, and it is fair game to deceive. It is fair game to undermine. It is fair game to exploit and manipulate and coerce. And to take that approach, Right? And to then apply that to a, a democratic system where the reason why democracies have legitimacy in the first place is because people have autonomy and agency. And your very strategy is to undermine that agency and autonomy that, und that underpins the rationale of democracy itself. That is inherently undemocratic. So, to, so and, and, and this is why using the, the understanding that a culture war literally means a war, right? So all, all things are fair in war. And, and that is not an appropriate way of engaging in the democratic system. Mm -hmm. And that's not what that research was meant to do. 
can you can you apply the research in the opposite direction? If it's a war, can you just do it right back? So you know, use Facebook as a platform for revving up people's ideas of revolution, or you know, pushing back from the left wing. You know. But the question would be, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to fight like a war in an election where each side then starts to try to undermine people's understanding and warp their understanding of what is real or not? And then we get into a situation where it's even worse. We've got the mirror version of Donald Trump, and all of a sudden our, our entire democracy is about, like, did is this real or not? Right? That is... So there is an area of research called counter-propaganda, where you seek to inoculate people before they're exposed to certain kinds of propaganda or harmful information. But to seek to manipulate and warp people's perception because the other side is doing it, I don't think is like okay, okay. the right way to go. I mean, how, how do you inoculate people from being influenced? Um, so there's different approaches. I mean, I could go into it or you've like... Got, but you've got one minute. We've got... Yeah, I don't have time to go into it. Sorry. Um, there is... But I, I, think, I think, you know, more broadly, it's like we need to understand also that the, this was facilitated because of the proliferation of social media in our environment and also, like, companies like Facebook knew that this was happening. Right? They they I mean, approved, how, how, they approved how, how the applications that were doing this. Yeah. They how, hired some of the people who worked on this project. Yeah. Um, they I had correspondence with them as far back as 2016 when the election was happening, um, and they didn't do anything about it um, when they could have. And I think one of the the real lessons here is that our our democracy and our elections are becoming a space to fight warfare, and no one's doing anything about it to protect people. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Um, cool. It's great to have you here. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview. I'm Stephen Bertoni. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. 